Meet Reed Lance Rosenthal, rancher, number one best-selling, award-winning author, and unabashedly, unapologetically on the right side of the outstanding issues of our generation. But don't try to fence him in. Sometimes his positions will surprise you because Reed is definitely his own man with his own opinions. You might love him, you might hate him, but you won't be able to stop listening. Step over to the right side with Reed. Howdy listeners from coast to coast, from the Gulf to Canada and around the globe. This is Reed Lance Rosenthal on the Right Side Radio. Wow, another big show. So, we're going to have our founder's quote. It's a little bit different today. I'm going to have a little rant story for you, which I think ties in. A little mini history story on how things which look really bad turn out really good. And then we're going to finish up, I hope, (laughs) because it's a lot of information foreign policy of the United States, the history of it. We're going to start around 1900 when things really began to change. Last week on the rightsideradio.com, if you missed it, listen to it. Fascinating. And it'll tell you about what's going on today in this mess we call the world and America's quote-unquote role in it. And of course, we'll have the rest of the story. But this is going to go from 1900 to the current times. I'm going to have some little foreign policy tidbits over the last week, none of which will, shall we say, make you really happy. Yes. Then we're going to talk about the economy, what it means to you, what's underlying it. This is stuff that you really haven't heard out there in mainstream media land because I don't know whether they want to tell you or they don't have a clue or maybe a combination of both. Who knows? Particularly housing. And I think... What I'm going to share with you is going to help you, you, your family, your finances. The more information you have right now, the better prepared you will be. Then we are going to talk about a little bit about gun control because, you know, it is rolling down the hill what you can do to get involved and what you can do to get involved in the election, which is where you really, although cadaver will still be in office, where you can really make a difference. But it's time to stand up, folks. I mean, daylight's wasting, as John Wayne would say. And then we're going to have rat-a-tat-tat. Oh, yes. Uh, That'll make your eyes roll. So let's get started, shall we? First of all, we're going to depart from the founders and Thomas Paine and those folks. We're going to go to George Orwell, 1984, a prescient book. If you haven't read it, you really should. But let me give you a quote. Quote, we know that no one ever seizes power with the intention of relinquishing it. Another quote, the masses never revolt of their own accord, and they never revolt merely because they are oppressed. Indeed, so long as they are not permitted to have standards of comparison, they never even become aware that they are oppressed. And you know, leading right into that, I know many of you are concerned, upset, down in the mouth about the direction the country has taken, its intentional dismantling by the progressives of the Democratic Party, the Democratic Marxists of the Democratic Party, not to be confused with red dog, blue dog Democrats or liberal Democrats who are Americans who think left. Let me tell you, you know, sunshine always follows rain. Floodwaters always recede, even though there's damage in their wake. And by the way, a shout out to you folks in Montana and the Dakotas. I hope you're doing okay up there with all the flooding you've had. But let me tell you a little mini historical story here. So in 1774, give or take, all the rebels, you know, the colonials that were talking about and inspired by Thomas Paine, they were getting together. It was called the House of Burgess. 
and they were meeting at a tavern, the Raleigh Tavern. And the British, of course, were not happy about this because, you know, the, the talk of sedition and rebellion and resisting the crown and the taxes and all that kind of stuff did not make the British happy. Just like the folks who are illegitimately in power right now are not happy with anything that goes against their maniacal rhetoric. So the British swooped in, shut down the House of Burgess. Well, the Patriots, the Colonials, the Rebels were not to be deterred. They had a mission and they began to meet in secret. And that, shall we say, residual of the House of Burgess, which the British rather forcefully shut down, became the Continental Congress, which declared independence on July 4th, 1776. So you see, sunshine always follows rain. And along those lines, it's been windy here in Wyoming. I think it's residual from the incredible rains and storms that these poor folks north of us in Montana and the Dakotas have been just hammered with and the flooding up there. But you know, the grass is starting to get high. I mean, it's finally growing with at least a day here and there in the 70s or 80s, although very cool at night. And it's getting to the height where it waves in the wind, you know, shimmering waves of green and of all sorts of shades and types that roll back and forth with each gust or a varying direction of wind. And I noticed the other day that although the wind blows heavily from a direction for hours on end, the grass undulating in the sunlight, it invariably, it always changes direction. And then the grass is waving in another direction with a different type of brighter light. And that, I think, is kind of the theme of this show, particularly as we talk about foreign policy. So let's get started, shall we? Foreign policy of the United States really began to shift around 1900, where we left off last week. And February 1898, the USS Maine exploded mysteriously a battleship in the harbor of Havana, Cuba. This incited all sorts of nationalism. It began the Spanish-American War which, by the way, the U.S. won easily and quickly. And America obtained from Spain, Cuba, Puerto Rico, the Philippines, and Guam. It also marked the transition of America from a regional to a global power. There was a quick war in the Philippines. It was a short operation to suppress insurgents, ensure U.S. control of the islands. That was in 1907. And then in 1904, with the Roosevelt corollary, if you will, to the Monroe Doctrine and the ascendancy of our friend Captain Alfred Thayer Mahon, remember the architect of a new global naval strategy and navy for the United States. The U.S. Navy emerged as a major naval power because of the modernization programs, and America began to expand its reach. There was altercations and then a rapprochement with Mexico, up to about 1917. And then we get President Woodrow Wilson, who was a globalist and a progressive, really the first progressive in the office of the presidency of the United States. And under Wilson, the Democratic Party started to switch kind of its MO. It consistently condemned militarism, imperialism, quote unquote, and interventionism in foreign policy. And they began to advocate, oh, this goes back to my historical story on, you know, the New World Order and the Great Reset, its history. Go to the history page on the right side, radio.com. They advocated world involvement, 
along liberal and internationalist lines. Wilson appointed William Jennings Bryan as the Secretary of State, and this guy was a progressive just like Wilson. Notwithstanding this new thrust in policy for the Democratic Party, the United States intervened militarily in a number of Latin American countries from 1914 to 1920, Haiti, Mexico, Dominican Republic, Cuba, Panama, you name it. But Wilson tried to walk the fine line, the delicate line between kind of giving a push but not really getting involved. With the outbreak of World War I in 1914, the United States declared neutrality. It supposedly tried to work to broker a peace, and it insisted on neutral rights, its ability to deal with both sides. But then the Lusitania was sunk in 1915. 128 American civilians died, over 1,000 Brits died, and America declared war on Germany. Along this time, Wilson came up with a policy, a doctrine, called the 14 Points, which would later become the League of Nations, which would later become, oh, our friend, the United Nations, but we'll get into that. And then, with World War I over, Wilson and several allies intervened in Russia in 1918-1919, even though the military was strongly opposed to that intervention. The British kind of took the lead. There was actually American troops and sailors in Vladivostok, and Murmansk from April 1918 to December 1919. This is where the enmity between Russia and the United States began, and this is where the distrust of Russian leadership of the West, and America in particular, had its roots. And we know where that is led. At the Versailles Peace Conference at the end of World War I, Wilson succeeded in obtaining kind of his main goal, the League of Nations, that would hopefully resolve all future conflicts before they cause another major war, you know, the war to end all wars. But Wilson refused to consult with Republicans at all, zero, nada, and they were in control of Congress after the 1918 elections. They demanded revisions, protecting the right of Congress to declare war, in other words, sovereignty, of the United States. I mean, we're right there right now, aren't we, folks, in a whole bunch of ways? And we have the same thing going on. This is not bipartisan. This is just steamroller executive order stuff. Henry Cabot Lodge, remember that name from last week? He now controlled the Senate, a Republican. He was a bitter enemy of Wilson. And in the end, the treaty that formed the League of Nations was never ratified by the United States. Believe it or not, the United States was never a formal member of the League of Nations. The doctrines that arose under Wilson began to be called Wilson... <laughs> Why don't we say Wilsonism? How's that? That's close enough. On spreading democracy and peace under American power and auspices all around the globe. And the foreign policy camps in the United States really split into three kind of camps. You had the Wilsonian idealism, you had realism, you had revisionism. Realism is basically the outlook and policies of Theodore Roosevelt and George Kennan and Henry Kissinger and Richard Nixon. Democracy for realists was a much lower priority than the advancement of American national interests. They would gladly work with a dictator or somebody of the opposite ideological mindset to achieve America's goals than not. The third approach came out of the new left, which was beginning to rise in the 1960s. The New Left it was led by a guy by the name of William Appleman Williams, and it was called the Wisconsin School. 
it argued that selfish economic motivations, not idealism, not realism, motivated Wilsonian idealism. I know it's a circular argument, but it is the argument of the left. These people were shocked when the realism of the Chinese communists rejecting democracy in 1989 in the Tiananmen Square protests and massacre, and when Putin rejected it for Russia, they were also dismayed later on when George Bush's initiative to bring democracy to the Middle East after 9-11 failed. It didn't produce an Arab Spring, but instead, as we have seen, folks, anti-democratic results, particularly in Egypt, Iraq, Syria, Afghanistan, Lebanon, you name it. America was beginning to feel its muscle, its military muscle, its economic muscle particularly, and it began to dictate major diplomatic questions in Europe. It also began the policy of largesse with our tax money to all sorts of foreign nations for all sorts of reasons to accomplish all sorts of either American or elitist ends, depending upon which way you want to look at it. The U.S. played a role in setting up the Permanent Court of International Justice, which is now known as the World Court. The Senate never ratified that joining. And in the end, the U.S. never joined. And when the World Court was replaced by the International Court of Justice in 1945, there was an amendment from a senator by the name of Connolly that reserved the right of the United States to refuse to abide by the World Court's decisions. And once again, this came down to a question of globalism versus sovereignty of individual nations, particularly the Americans. Lots of policy in the 1930s, leading up to World War II, came from a conference called the Washington Naval Conference, which dated back to the end of the 1920s. A Republican from Idaho, William E. Borah, was its biggest supporter, and it kind of took root in the Harding administration back then. It was attended, this conference, by nine nations, United States, Japan, China, France, Great Britain, Italy, Belgium, Netherlands, and Portugal. The USSR and Germany were not invited. <laughs> that turned out to be a major mistake, i.e. World War II. There were three treaties, the Four Power Treaty, the Five Power Treaty, and the Nine Power Treaty. It basically kept peace in Asia and the Pacific during the 1920s and during the 1930s. But then, of course, we know what happened. In the meantime, over in Europe, there was a thing called the Dawes Plan. France was demanding more money than Germany could pay. The Allies had forced huge reparations on Germany after World War I, basically the cost of the entire Allied war effort. Germany obviously could not pay it. And when we come back, we'll finish up Foreign Affairs Historical, and I'll tell you the rest of the story. Hello, I'm Mike Lindell, CEO of MyPillow. Retailers, shopping channels, and now even banks have tried to cancel myself and my pillow. During these times, your support has meant everything to us. So my employees and I want to personally thank each and every one of you by passing the savings directly on to you. We're selling the best products ever for the best prices ever. For example, we have my towels with proprietary technology, which makes them soft and absorbent. Towels that work, what a concept. They're made with USA cotton and come in a variety of awesome colors. My six-piece towel set is regularly $109.99, now just $39.99 with your promo code. Support Mike. Support America. 
Get great stuff. Use the promo code RIGHTSIDE, R-I-G-H-T-S-I-D-E, RIGHTSIDE, or call 800-892-1083, RIGHTSIDE. Do you own an annuity, either fixed rate, indexed, or variable? Are you paying high fees and getting low returns? If so, Annuity General would like you to have this free book to learn the pitfalls and mistakes of buying an annuity. The Annuity Do's and Don'ts for Baby Boomers contains the little-known truths about annuities, like how to help reduce your fees and increase retirement income. And it's free. That's right, free. As a bonus, we'll also throw in a free annuity rate report just for calling. We researched over 1,000 annuities and summarized rates and benefits from financially strong insurers. You get Annuity Do's and Don'ts for Baby Boomers and the Annuity Rate Report, both absolutely free for calling Annuity General today. Hurry, supplies are limited. Call now. 800-914-1358. 800-914-1358. That's 800-914-1358. Hey, listeners. This is Reed Lance Rosenthal, your host of On the Right Side Radio, and I have a message for you. Do you want a business? Sell a product? Provide a service? Have a message you want to get out? Do you believe in freedom, the Constitution, and America? Here's your opportunity to reach 69 million sets of ears in scores of markets around the country, including five of the top 10 and 15 of the top 50 markets in the United States of America. Very affordable, very flexible, 30 and 60 second packages available. Give your business a boost and help America get the truth. Call Francis at Media Airtime at 602-300-8250, 602-300-8250, or write Francis at MediaAirtime.com. That's F-R-A-N-C-I-S at MediaAirtime.com. Thank you. Welcome back, folks. Read Lance Rosenthal on the Right Side Radio. Let's finish up our historical story on U.S. foreign relations and then the rest of the story and then the economy and rat-a-tat-tat. Many historians feel that after France, because they weren't getting paid, occupied the Ruhr, R-U-H-R, kind of the industrial heart of Germany in 1923 to try and get repayment, to try and seize assets, That caused an international crisis, and Germany deliberately hyperinflated their currency to make the occupation really expensive for France. The Dawes plan kind of set out a new financial scheme. New York banks loaned Germany hundreds of millions of dollars that it used to pay reparations and rebuild its heavy industry. We know how that turned out. France, Britain, other countries used the reparations in turn to repay wartime loans they had received from the United States. And in the end, with the collapse of the German economy in 1931, the suspension of reparations, less than 21 billion marks in reparations were paid of the 69 billion in marks that Germany was supposed to pay. In 1953, however, kind of an interesting sidelight, West Germany paid the entire remaining balance of World War I reparations. You expats in various foreign countries, you've moved there for whatever reason, maybe you think it's safer. Let me remind you of some history. The ups and downs with Mexico in the teens and 20s of the 20th century, a lot of it stemmed from when President Alvaro Obregón, after assuring Americans would be protected in Mexico, the Mexican government in the 1930s expropriated 
I mean basically just took, seized millions of acres of land from hundreds of American property owners as part of a land redistribution program. You know, the uh, Mexico was acting as Robin Hood. Take from the Americans, give to the Mexicans by votes. Oh, well, gee, we don't, haven't seen that happen anywhere, have we? So just keep that in mind, you expats. Keep that in mind. The United States entered a period in the 1930s of pretty deep isolation. And even when the Spanish Civil War broke out, Franco versus the Loyalists, in 1936, the United States remained neutral, banned arms sales to either side. And in the end, that too would have an effect on World War II, the rise of Germany, and the greatest conflict so far that the world has ever seen. President Roosevelt, this is FDR now, basically set his foreign policy, believe it or not, and he admits it in his memoirs, to be almost exactly the opposite of Woodrow Wilson. Virtually everything Woodrow Wilson had done, Roosevelt took the exact opposite stance in the years leading up to and during World War II. We didn't loan money to allies anymore. We did it through the Lend-Lease program. They were grants of military and economic aid. Rather than being kind of an associate of the folks fighting in World War I, we were now a full-fledged ally of Britain and France and the other allied countries. And then, of course, the attack on Pearl Harbor. Unlike Wilson, who geared up America in reaction to world events, FDR geared up America in anticipation of world events. Industrial expansion, military expansion, at least of some type, was ongoing as early as 1939 and 1940. And in Pearl Harbor, although many people think there was some type of conspiracy there, the real facts are is that the Japanese were faking peace talks at the exact same time in Washington. They had cut off their diplomatic corps from military communications because they knew the Americans had penetrated the Japanese diplomatic corps' encrypted radio. And they used fake radio signals to indicate that the main fleet, which was really on its way to attack Pearl Harbor, was in Japanese waters. And they pretended, because they had been in Russia along with the Allies in the intervention 10, 15 years prior, that their fleet was headed toward Russia. And the Americans were way behind on intelligence. They really had no intelligence gathering and they had no coordination of intelligence. What arose out of the Pearl Harbor attacks was the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services. I know it well, my father served in it. And it was the forerunner of the Central Intelligence Agency. So you can see now the roots of part of the deep state. One thing that FDR did that did follow Wilson's footsteps was the United States was the major force in establishing the United Nations, kind of the successor to the League of Nations. It began in 1945 when America hosted a meeting of 50 nations in San Francisco. There were lots of debates, the same thing, globalism versus sovereignty. To get around some of these, the Security Council was established. The United States, the Soviet Union, Britain, France, and China. They all became permanent members of the Security Council, and any one country, any one of them, could veto any policy or action by the United Nations. And then, of course, following World War II, world affairs were dominated by the Cold War. In 1948, the United States enacted what was called the Marshall Plan, which supplied Western Europe, including West Germany, with $13 billion, a lot of money back then, in reconstruction aid. Stalin did not allow the East European nations to participate. The United States did a similar program with Japan, and the main diplomatic initiative was the establishment of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO, in 1949. That kind of committed the United States to nuclear defense of Western Europe 
and it committed Western Europe to engage in a military buildup under NATO supervision to counter Russian aggression during the Cold War. And during this time, the United States embarked on a very successful propaganda mission to influence people behind the Iron Curtain. You should listen to my historical story on the history of propaganda on the rightsideradio.com. You'll find it fascinating. This is really where it got its seed. This is where America's deep state kind of polished the craft, so to speak. Then in the 1960s, the Soviets broke with China because the communist movement worldwide had become divided. (laughs) Of course, right now, we're doing exactly the opposite. We're pushing who should be our ally, Russia, into the arms of China. This is really not good for the United States and Europe. And the United States adopted a policy of containment, basically a bipolar Russia and the United States geopolitics. The Cold War was characterized by a lack of global wars, but a whole bunch of regional proxy wars, and the U.S. intervention in a whole bunch of secret ops in a whole bunch of countries. These proxy wars, by the way, include the Korean War, the Vietnam War, the mess in Iran with Jimmy Carter, supporting the Americans, supporting the Mujahideen forces in Afghanistan, which later on, of course, our people were fighting people that we had trained. Ah, great. And then came the Cuban Missile Crisis, which was a standoff of the Soviet Union and the United States in enforcement of the Monroe Doctrine. No foreign power can enter the Americas. And, of course, the removal of nuclear weapons that Russia had tried to place secretly 90 miles from the American coast. What a lot of people don't know is that Kennedy masterfully negotiated a deal. The Soviets removed their missiles in a compromise, and they made their removal of the missiles public. The United States, however, secretly removed its nuclear missiles in Turkey. And by the way, Nikita Khrushchev, because of this so-called reckless behavior of his, was removed by the communist leaders in Moscow. And then, of course, we come to Vietnam, an utter disaster. It began with 16,000 soldiers in 1963 and expanded to over 500,000 American troops in 1968. More than 50,000 Americans died. Several hundred thousand were maimed, injured, wounded, and, of course, it tore the country apart. In 1964, LBJ got unanimous support in Congress for the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution, which unfortunately gave him very broad discretion to use military force as he saw fit. He turned most of the fighting over to ARVN, the South Vietnam Army, who was obviously well-equipped since it was financed by Americans and well-trained. And the ARVN was successful against the Viet Cong, but it was no match for the North Vietnamese Army, which later invaded. We know how all this ended. It didn't end well. Then came Richard Nixon, along with his aide, Henry Kissinger. This is in the 1970s, actually the early 1970s. He rejected the longstanding containment policy that had been followed, and instead worked on playing off the two main communist rivals, China and Russia, against one another. And in doing so, got them to withdraw their support for the North Vietnamese Army, and that allowed Nixon to turn the war over to the government of the South, which of course (laughs) ended very poorly for America and South Vietnam. This was called the Nixon Doctrine, and it basically shifted the main responsibility for the defense of an ally to the ally itself, especially regarding on-the-boots, on-the-ground combat. The United States would work on the diplomacy, provide financial help and munitions, and help train the Allied Army. Vietnam was the first real test of that, but we know how it turned out. And this also sowed the seeds for the disaster of Jimmy Carter in Iran. The Shah Mohammad Pavlavi kind of seized on the Nixon doctrine with its message that Asian nations should be responsible for their own defense. 
and tried to get the America to sell him arms to put down the increasing radical opposition to his government that was uh, beginning to boil in Iran. It didn't work because America could not make a decision. The Shah fled. The two main guys in the Carter administration responsible for foreign policy, because Jimmy Carter didn't know squat, was a guy by the name of Brzezinski and another guy by the name of Vance. They were at odds. Brzezinski was much harder nosed, Vance was much softer. For instance, in Iran, Brzezinski urged the Shah to crack down. Vance argued for reforms by the Shah. In the end, the Shah was confused, fled, and Iran fell to radical Islam. And then came Ronald Reagan. He rejected both detente, getting along, and containment, and announced that his goal was to win the Cold War by destroying the threat of Soviet communism. Remember him denouncing Moscow as the evil empire? And he did this through sheer force, an economic force. Remember, all wars are economic. And in the end, his buildup of allied military power and American military power, which Russia could not hope to match, weakened Soviet power. In 1989, all the East European satellites revolted, overthrew Moscow's control. West Germany took over East Germany. In 1991, Russia quote-unquote overthrew communism. And by the end of that year, Gorbachev lost power and the Soviet Union dissolved. The United States and NATO had won the Cold War, and the United States was the world's only superpower. But we kind of blew it. Which bumps us to George Bush Sr., 1989 to 1993 presidency. Bush downplayed vision, unlike Reagan. He emphasized caution, careful management. His Secretary of State, James Baker, Lawrence Eagleburger, they were cautious, and they reached out on a number of international levels. Under his watch, you had the June 1989 Tiananmen Square crushing of protests in China, the United States invasion of Panama in December 1989 to overthrow a dictator, the beginnings of the Start One and Start Two nuclear disarmament treaties with Russia, the Gulf War in 1991, the end victory in the Cold War over Soviet communism, the revolutions of 1989 in Eastern Europe, Poland, Slovakia, etc., German unification in 1990, all of course set up by Reagan, and the dissolution of the Soviet Union in 1991, also set up by Reagan. So here we have the Clinton folks, and then Barack Obama and George Bush. And America was the sole, for part of that time, superpower. It was a monopolar world. But because America missed a bunch, a bunch of opportunities to kind of cement the gains and maintain its status, we now have a multipolar world. You know, things changed dramatically with the September 11th attacks, the 2001-911 on the World Trade Center. Whether or not they were surprises or not, we're not going to get into. But the bottom line is that, that began the war on terrorism, the expenditure of trillions upon trillions of dollars, thousands of American lives, hundreds of thousands of American casualties in one way, shape, or form, tens of thousands actually wounded on the battlefield, and the Bush Doctrine, which was to not only go into a country, but try and rebuild it, try and establish a democracy. It was called national security liberalism, or democratic globalism, or messianic universalism. I mean, whatever. We spent a lot of blood. We spent a lot of treasure. We got nowhere. It was a dismal failure. And Barack Obama, a firm globalist, who believes that America should only be a seat at the table of nations. Not a believer in America exceptionalism whatsoever, in fact, quite the contrary. He begins by trying to appeal to the Muslim world in 2009. I think you'll remember his Cairo speech. But foreign policy was adrift during Obama's time. And the United States did not deal through strength. 
The United States did not follow through on its commitments to allies. For instance, Ukraine, supplying them arms. We supplied them blankets instead. For instance, Syria, the red line on chemical weapons, which was crossed and nothing was done. Then comes Donald Trump, the America First policies. Basically, every nation is free to do their own thing. America is putting itself first. And I'm not going to get into all his policies. You know what they are. But it was a stark reversal from the Obama years and a rather stark reversal from the Bush years. And now we have Obama's third term, President Cadaver, whatever you want to term it. And we are in a world of hurt. We really have no foreign policies. We don't have a policy of containment toward Russia or China. As we're about to get into with some of the current events just over the last week, and the current events I brought you last week on the rightsideradio.com. All of these, by the way, are on the website. You can read them in detail under international. It is obvious what's going on here. I don't want to use the cliche, America last, but why don't we say that it's definitely, definitely not America first. In fact, our foreign policy is completely adrift, and it seems to be intentional. Hey, listeners, this is Reed Lance Rosenthal, your host of On the Right Side Radio, and I have a message for you. Do you want a business, sell a product, provide a service, have a message you want to get out? Do you believe in freedom, the Constitution, and America? Here's your opportunity to reach 69 million sets of ears in scores of markets around the country, including five of the top 10 and 15 of the top 50 markets in the United States of America very affordable, very flexible, 30 and 60 second packages available. Give your business a boost and help America get the truth. Call Francis at Media Airtime at 602-300-8250, 602-300-8250, or write Francis at MediaAirtime.com. That's F-R-A-N-C-I-S at MediaAirtime.com. Thank you. If you're taking a calcium supplement, it's probably not doing what you think it is. That's because you still lose bone density with traditional calcium supplements. That's where calcium from algae comes in. Algae Cal Plus doesn't just stop bone loss. It's the only supplement ever shown to increase bone density in clinical studies. That's right. Algae Cal Plus increases bone density, even if you're in your 80s. That's because your bones need more than just calcium and vitamin D to stay strong. There are actually 13 minerals and 3 vitamins needed to build healthy new bone and algae cal plus contains all of them and it's proudly made in the usa your calcium doesn't increase bone density algae cal plus does talk to one of our bone health consultants today and see how algae cal plus can start increasing your bone density call now 800-378-3719 That's 800-378-3719. Do you own an annuity, either fixed rate, indexed, or variable? Are you paying high fees and getting low returns? If so, Annuity General would like you to have this free book to learn the pitfalls and mistakes of buying an annuity. The Annuity Do's and Don'ts for Baby Boomers contains the little-known truths about annuities, like how to help reduce your fees and increase retirement income. And it's free. That's right, free. As a bonus, we'll also throw in a free annuity rate report just for calling. We researched over 1,000 annuities and summarized rates and benefits from financially strong insurers. You get annuity do's and don'ts for baby boomers and the annuity rate report, both absolutely free for calling Annuity General today. 
Hurry, supplies are limited. Call now. 800-914-1358-800-914-1358-800-914-1358 That's 800-914-1358 And now, based on this adrift, seemingly anti-American, certainly not America first, foreign policy or lack thereof, I bring you the rest of the story. Let me tell you just three things that happened this past week because of the policies or lack thereof of President Cadaver, Obama third term. So to give you an idea of what's going on just over the last week, here in America, Biden calls a summit of the Americas, all the countries, you know, South America, Central America, etc. He doesn't invite Nicaragua, Venezuela, or Cuba because they're dictatorships, and you know, we can't have them involved in this. The bottom line is a huge embarrassment. It was meant to show American strength. <laughs> Let me give you the, the Times headline, right? The New York Times. The summit of the Americas was meant to counter China's influence. Instead, it showed how weak the U.S. is. As a matter of fact, folks, a whole bunch of countries didn't show up. And Nicaragua, one of the countries that wasn't invited because it's run by a dictator, then announced several days later, that it was going to allow Russian troops on Nicaraguan soil. And what you probably didn't know is that China has a huge investment and is already extracting resources from that and other Central American countries. So much for the Monroe Doctrine that we discussed. So the, the Russian troops are absolutely there with China's permission. So once again, we're throwing our two adversaries together rather than keeping them separate as we have in the past. And then in Guatemala, all sorts of things have bubbled to the surface in the last week. It seems like the Department of State has been down there trying to overthrow the democratic-friendly and anti-corruption government and install DOS puppets, which isn't sitting too well with Guatemala, who, by the way, also didn't attend the Conference of Americas. I mean, it's a disaster down there. And as you know from last week, all those countries, particularly along the Pacific side, are very unstable. And that's also affecting immigration. Next thing that happened last week... Quote, led by China, world's nuclear arsenals to grow for the first time since the Cold War. That happens to be a headline by the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute. And it seems that uh, the nine nuclear powers on the planet, including Israel, by the way, I forgot to mention that last, last week when we were talking about Israel-Iran, Israel's nuclear. They estimate they have 90 nuclear warheads. There's a combined total of 12,705 warheads in early 22. That's down 70,000, by the way down from 70,000 in 1986, but now it's going back up. And it's driven by China, who is expected to triple their roughly 350 warheads by the year 2030. They are hell-bent, and they are busy establishing a triad to be able to deliver nuclear weapons from the air, the land, and the sea, which currently they don't have. How do you think that will do for stability? And think about the Chinese defense minister speeches, which I've brought to you in previous shows on the rightsideradio.com. Just put in China. The shows will come up. Listen especially to the February 22nd, 2020 show. I read the whole speech. It'll chill you. All these articles are on the website under international. So that you know, all five nuclear-armed permanent members of the United Nations Security Council, remember we talked about them, Britain, China, France, Russia, and the U.S., are now increasing or upgrading their nuclear arsenals. Ah, that should make you warm, fuzzy, and safe. 
We're going to have more on China next week on exactly what they're doing with their nuclear arsenals. Is not good, folks. Not good. And then our Secretary of Dents, the SecDec, Lloyd Austin, Wonder Military Wizard. <laughs> he's, uh, he's doing a press conference or whatever with the Thai Prime Minister in Bangkok last week, supposedly to rally Asia around the United States. Oh, okay. Basically, he said when he was asked, well, how can America be focusing on Asia and protecting Taiwan when you're so engrossed over here in Ukraine? And his answer was, America can walk and chew gum at the same time. Okay, great. That's great. I will absolutely sleep like a baby tonight thinking about that. So you know, 20,000 more troops have been sent to the European theater. And over the last year or so, 300,000 troops, sailors, etc., are serving in the Indo-Pacific, you know, the Taiwan problem. That's the fun news, and that's just the... Trust me, folks, it's the tip of the dark iceberg on foreign relations last week under the current administration. Now, let's get to economy. So, folks, let's talk about the economy, which Biden's press secretary is trying to tell us is just record good. Yeah, look up what she said the other day. I mean, you got to be, it's unbelievable. Look, the economy is not good. Storm clouds are overhead and they're getting thicker and grayer as you peer off toward the horizon. Yields, which is interest rates and the price of bonds, they move inversely, have inverted. Short-term rates are now lower than long-term rates. That always portends a recession. You know what's going on with gas. You know what's going on with food. You know what's going on with inflation. We're going to talk a little bit about the housing market because most people are about 60 days behind on reality there. And you know that your income is not keeping pace with the rise of costs the rise in the amount of dollars that you need to spend for the same commodity. And we're going to talk about commodities because commodities kind of underlay everything. So fuel is up 60% from this time last year. It's 120% higher than June 2020. Food is up, depending upon the food type of item, anywhere from 10 to 80%. California is a total wreck. That's why they have diesel prices approaching $10, gas prices approaching 8 And I hate to tell you, but those prices are coming your way. Most economists feel that the commodity super cycle is upon us. Unfortunately, it's coinciding with this horrible monetary policy and money printing and ridiculous bills trying to buy votes, which we've encountered over the last two years. It's, you know, it's the convergence of two really dark lines. There's all sorts of things being driven by this indoor farming, vertical farming. We're going to talk about that in future shows, but... It can't gear up fast enough. It can't gear up big enough to take care of what's here and what's coming. And then on top of that, in terms of foodstuffs and crops, we have droughts in large areas of the country. And then we have the Ukraine-Russia thing. I've brought you that story. I mean, that's give or take 30% of the world's wheat supply. And exports of crops like wheat, barley, sunflower oil are going to continue to push food prices higher. And of course, then there's urea. You've heard about it in the context of the fertilizer disaster going on. But guess what? It has to do with diesel engines too, what's called DEF. I'm going to tell you all about that next week. It'll blow your mind. The April component of food as a piece of inflation jumped 9.4%, and that was after an 8.8% increase in March. We don't quite have May's numbers that are coming out any day. The real thing that's going to drive this is commodities. You have an unfortunate collision between the super cycle, which is about a 20-year cycle in commodities that happens naturally, and you have 
all these external events. And to put it in context, commodities are the things you need, not that you want. Metals, food, fuel, timber. And when they rise, their impact on inflation downstream is inevitable. And by the way, unfortunately, long-lived. On top of that, you have the Fed raising interest rates. Just a few days ago, three-quarters of a percent. That's one of the largest rate increases by the Fed ever, certainly in the last 20 or 30 years. So you have a double squeeze going on. Think about the effect that this is going to have on the national debt. I mean, when you have a national debt of $30 trillion plus, and interest rates rise 1%, that's $300 billion a year, folks. And we're hemorrhaging red ink under cadaver as it is. Commodities are up more than 40% so far in 2022 and accelerating. The price of natural gas is up 180% over the past year. 180%. The price of corn hit a nine-year high in April. Coal is up 260% in the last 12 months. And the CPI numbers that you're looking at are not the real numbers. The real numbers you can find at realstatistics.com. We're going to put the link up on the website again realstatistics.com. You should keep your eyes peeled to that website. And you can get the link on ontherightsideradio.com. The real inflation number is the S&P has what's called a GSCI total return index. It's a benchmark of global commodity performance. It's up more than 50% over the past year. 50%. 40% of that, or should we say 80% of that in 2022. This all goes back a long time. It goes back to when the dollar was set free from the gold peg back in the 1970s. That was a bad idea. It's proving to be a horrible idea as time goes on in all sorts of ways. National debt, expenditures, red ink in the budget, and of course, your pocketbook. Now, bear this in mind. The average bull market in commodities in the past two centuries has lasted close to two decades and gained 250%. So we're only one-fifth, 20% of the way to our possible long-term rise in commodities, which will push everything else up. And this is affecting housing, both the price of building a home, the price you have to pay when you buy a home. As sellers right now, what you will get if you sell a home, you know, all the real estate statistics that the realtors are jumping up and down about, that most of the mainstream media talks about, they're old. Five offers on a house and over list price and all that kind of stuff. That's April stuff. This market has turned. I warned you a year ago it was going to do that. I know real estate. Let me give you some headlines from April 2022. United States housing prices and market. Median price up 15.3%, selling for a median price of 423000 Here's another one. Hottest market since 2012. And I can go on and on. That's April news. You've got to be looking ahead. You've got to be watching your market, particularly if you were a seller. Here's some recent headlines, like... This last week, Redfin U.S. Housing, they're a huge national realtor group, to lay off hundreds as housing market cools. Next one, cooling housing market prompts layoffs at Redfin. Producer prices soar. Housing market, experts share home selling strategies as mortgage rates rise and home buyer demand falls. Price your home slightly lower than similar homes that sold recently in your neighborhood. Buyers are sensitive to rising rates. This is just in the last few days, this next little set of headlines I'm going to give you. This year is going to be choppy water. Property prices plunge up to 20% in U.S. as buyers, etc., etc. Real estate stocks crater as new fears of a prolonged U.S. housing market slump, etc., etc. U.S. housing market is finally chilling out, Bloomberg. Housing market shows cooling signs after interest rate hike. U.S. housing market, single-family landlord C, etc., etc. Look, for the first time, 
Median rent breached $2,000 a month around the country. I mean, it's outrageous. What you folks need to do is you need to hunker down. If you're sellers, be smart. Get it done. Get it on the market. Don't be greedy. If you're buyers, if you find the right thing and you got to buy, you buy. For you sellers, you can always do some type of owner financing so long as it's not contrary to your deed of trust or mortgage terms. Talk with your realtor. Make sure you're represented professionally in any real estate transaction you do. I'm not your financial advisor. I'm just giving you some smart heads up that you can employ as you wish or not in your own situation. We're going to talk more about the economy in the coming weeks because it's going to be a big deal for each and every one of us. It already is, but it's not going to get better. It's going to get worse before it gets better. Remember that grass waving in the wind on the ranch. The wind is hard and steady right now from one direction, folks. It's nowhere near turning. And remember, a lot of this is intentional policies to squeeze you. Let's do a little rat-a-tat-tat. Gun control. You need to get on your senators. The place to stop this onerous gun bill that's already through the House and on the Senate floor with 10 rhinos. Lisa Murkowski, Joni Ernst, Susan Collins, Shelley Capito, Rob Portman, Ohio, no less, John Cornyn, unbelievable, Texas, Kevin Kramer, North Dakota, Tom Tillis, North Carolina, Jerry Moran, Kansas, wow, Richard Burr, North Carolina, and Roy Blunt, Missouri. You need to write these senators, not just your senators, to make sure they still toe the line. You need to write these senators as an American, even though you are not their direct senatorial constituent. By the way, on the gun control, ominous warning from the Attorney General of Missouri, Eric Schmidt, who, by the way, is great. Quote, well, the first thing is these Senate Republicans need to back away from this dangerous dance with these gun-grabbing Democrats. That's the first thing that needs to happen. Because this is a very dangerous road to go down, and you'd be eviscerating two fundamental rights, the Second Amendment and the right to due process along the way. He was speaking of red flag laws. And we are out of time, but lots more next week. Things on China stealing farmer secrets, more on voter fraud. There's more stuff coming out, some more on the economy for you, and a new historical story which you will find fascinating and apropos. Repeat after me, folks. And with conviction, and with your family, I will muster, I will stand, I will not comply, I will never give in, I will never stop fighting. I will join with those in these United States and across the globe who love freedom as I do, and we will win. This is Reed Lance Rosenthal on the Right Side Radio. Have a great week. Please remember, if you've missed any shows, just click on Show Archive and you'll find all of his shows. We look forward to seeing you here again next week for another episode of Reed Lance Rosenthal on the Right Side. Are you a fan of the 1883 miniseries? Then you will love its partial inspiration, Threads West, an American saga. The number one national Amazon and Barnes & Noble best-selling multi-generational epic saga of the American story in the West. Recipient of a whopping 34 national awards, including Best Historical Fiction, Best Multicultural Fiction, Best Romance, and Best Western. You will recognize the characters that live in these pages. They are you. They are us. This is not only their story, it is our story. Threads West is written 
written by Wyoming rancher Reed Lance Rosenthal. Lois Henderson, Chief AD Library Information Services, proclaims fluent and strong, sensual, evocative, and unforgettable. Compared to McMurtry's Pulitzer Prize-winning Lonesome Dove and Michener's Centennial, Rosenthal's epic masterpiece will rival even some of Louis L'Amour's best-loved work. Call the Gone with the Wind of the West and Sackets on Steroids. Get it now. Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, Kindle, Nook, Audible, or the publisser, ThreadsWestSeries.com. Hello, I'm Mike Lindell, CEO of MyPillow. I support this show, and I would like to offer you our biggest discounts for listening. So please go to our website, MyPillow.com, and put in the promo code at the end of this message to get the biggest discounts. Again, thanks for listening, and God bless. Use the promo code RIGHTSIDE, R-I-G-H-T-S-I-D-E, RIGHTSIDE, or call 800-892-1083, RIGHTSIDE. Do you own a timeshare? Well, face the facts. You made a mistake. You made a bad purchase. A timeshare is not an investment. It's a money pit that continues forever. If you use your timeshare, that's great. But if you don't and you want to legally get out of your contract, call my friends right now at the Timeshare Exit Hotline. They're an experienced team of lawyers who help good people like you get out of a timeshare contract that they just don't want. Don't throw away your money on maintenance fees. Use it for things you really want. We can help you end your timeshare contract and stop the money drain immediately. If you are ready to move on with your timeshare, call our team right now. Cancel your timeshare now with a free call. 800-296-0150. 800-296-0150. That's 800-296-0150. Do you owe the IRS $10,000 or more in back taxes? Are you being audited or investigated? Has the IRS sent you a letter demanding payment? You may not owe what they claim. Make this free call to the tax doctor now. Let them negotiate with the IRS on your behalf. 800-628-6070. 800-628-6070. That's 800-628-6070. 